This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Can the UK Economy Survive Brexit? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican in London. The discussion was produced in partnership with Vodafone. Right. Welcome, everybody. It's great to see it packed out. Thank you very much for coming. So this is one of the economic solution debates. It's titled, Can the UK Economy Survive Brexit? And I think we can probably safely say that it should also be, can the UK economy thrive with Brexit rather than just survive? That's up for debate as well. We are one speaker short at the moment, but I'm hoping um, he's going to appear before too long. Um, and I'll introduce him when he, when he arrives. But um, the, the, the debate is sponsored by Vodafone. Uh, which we're very grateful for them doing that. And, in fact, the speaker is from Vodafone, so I'm particularly hoping he's going to come along and tell us um, the, the relevant parts of that. So um, my name is Peter Lloyd. I'm involved with the Institute Ideas, have been for a number of years. Before we start, because this uh, is going to be um, end with a referendum um, on staying in or staying out, as things stand, I want to ask you now to... Um, Give us an idea about whether you are broadly, on economic grounds, in favour of staying in or in favour of leaving, just to give us a flavour of how the audience feels before we start. So those who are, think that they're broadly in favour on, on economic arguments of staying in the EU, could you put up your hands, please? Thank you very much. And those who think we are probably going to be better off out, which is... Quite a majority in favour of staying in as things stand. If we can, we might do that at the end to see if views have changed as a result of the debate. Um, so that would, be, that would be good. So I will just do quick introductions before we start. Um, and uh, on my immediate left is um, Baroness Faulkner, who is a Lib Dem peer and chair of the House of Lords EU Financial Affairs Subcommittee. And I think you are also spokesman on foreign affairs for the Lib Dems in the Lords. Is that correct? That's right. Excellent. Thank you very much. On her left is uh, Thomas uh, Keelinger, who's the UK correspondent of Die Welt. Excellent. Going well so far. And on my immediate right is Philippe uh, Legrain, who is visiting senior fellow of the LSE's European Institute and has written a number of uh, books, one of which is European Spring, Why Our Economics and Politics Are in a Mess and How to Put Them Right. And uh, on his right is Phil Mullen, who's an economist and director of Epping Consultant Business Advice. Right, with that, shall we get going? Philippe. Right, the question is, can the UK economy uh, survive Grexit? And the answer is, of course, yes, it can. I think the better question is, would Britain be better off economically or worse off uh, economically uh, outside the EU? Uh, and I think that we're better off uh, staying in uh, than leaving. That's because membership of the EU provides Britain with really quite substantial economic benefits. Uh, the first, of course, uh, is uh, free trade within the single market. Uh, nearly half of our trade uh, is with um, uh, the EU. And in goods, it's completely free. Uh, and in services, some of it's free and some of it's less free. Um, Secondly, foreign direct investment. 
Lots of companies uh, invest in Britain, partly because of the skills of the people who work here, partly because we've got you know, a good legal system and uh, all sorts of other advantages, but also partly because we're a member of the EU, uh, and if you invest here, you can uh, export um, uh, freely uh, across the EU. And so you look at, for example, the British car industry, which died, uh, and now there is a foreign-owned car industry, um, which employs uh, lots of people in skilled jobs, uh, and most of the cars that are produced are exported uh, to uh, the EU. The third thing uh, is that Britain is a relatively small um, economy globally. It's about 3.5% uh, of the world economy. Um, but, and that's obviously going to carry on shrinking uh, year by year um, as China, India and other countries uh, catch up. But within um, the EU, uh, it's a relatively big player. Uh, and especially when it's operating in alliances with like-minded countries like the Netherlands or uh, Sweden or Denmark, um, uh, it has uh, a say in shaping the rules of uh, the EU, um, and both the specific rules and the broad direction of the EU. And you can see that basically the EU has changed in a kind of British kind of direction since uh, we joined uh, more than 40 years ago. Following on from that is the clout that you, ha that you have from being part of a big club uh, in global negotiations. Uh, earlier in my career, I worked at the uh, World Trade Organization, and I know firsthand how, you know, at the time, a big player like the United States negotiates with small countries. They go in there and say, this is what you, we want, take it or leave it. Um, and if you're negotiating as part of the EU, um, then uh, you can um, uh, say no, that's not, well, that's not acceptable, this is what we want. And you can see on a whole host of issues that the EU and the EUS uh, negotiate um, as equals, um, that if the EU says that a merger can't go through, it doesn't go, a merger of American companies can't go through, it doesn't go through. If the, if the EU says um, that uh, US companies aren't um, respecting the privacy of Europeans' data, uh, then American companies need to comply with that. Uh, and a, a small country on its own would not have uh, that clout. And you can see that really firsthand, for example, in the extradition treaty which the, uh, the US concluded with the UK under the previous Labour government, which was completely one-sided, uh, even though ostensibly uh, we're great friends and partners, because the big power dominates uh, the small power. And in another previous job as economic advisor to the President of the European Commission, I visited China quite a bit. And no, the Chinese were generally pretty disparaging about Europe. It's your history, you know, we're the future, you're the past. Uh, but they're particularly disparaging about bits of Europe. And, you know, the idea that somehow um, one's, one relatively small bit of the world called Britain uh, would have influence uh, in, in Beijing or more influence in Beijing outside the EU, uh, I think, uh, is fanciful. That brings me to the, the last big economic benefit of the EU, uh, which is the, probably the most controversial, which is the free movement of people. Uh, I think um, it's uh, fantastically advantageous uh, both for British people uh, to be able to um, go uh, work anywhere in the EU uh, and more than two million Brits uh, live elsewhere in the EU. And it's also fantastically advantageous that um, uh, Britain is open uh, to people from uh, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Poland, uh, other European countries who come here and do uh, jobs that need doing, who uh, pay more taxes than they take out uh, in benefits, um, uh, and um, who generally contribute uh, to the economy uh, and to society. Those are the benefits of the EU. 
Set against that, there are a number of costs. First of all, there is the membership of the club. Uh, you have to pay a fee for that. Britain's net contribution uh, is £8.4 billion a year, which is a lot of money, but it's £130 per person. Um, so it's roughly it's a bit more than the price of the ticket to attend this weekend. Um, but in exchange for the price of that ticket, you get all the benefits uh, that I've just mentioned. It's about 0.5% of, of UK uh, GDP. Uh, another cost um, is the common agricultural policy, basically farm subsidies and tariffs, which means that we have higher food prices than otherwise. Basically, they're subsidies uh, to big landowners, um, uh, and they're particularly harmful uh, to people in poor countries who can't uh, export uh, to Britain and Europe uh, as they otherwise might be able to. Whether they would disappear if we left the EU, I'm pretty sceptical. We had farm subsidies before we joined the EU, and if you think of the, of the influence that big landowners have over the Conservative Party, and if you think about the eco-romantic wing of the Labour Party, I probably think we would end up with farm subsidies even if we left. Um, and last but not least is the idea that there are a whole host of regulations uh, which the EU imposes which would be um, lower uh, if we left. Uh, and in the most cases, the regulations actually provide benefits um, as well as costs. And most of the, uh, mo the worst regulations that exist in Britain are actually you know, enacted here by the British government, if you think of like uh, planning restrictions and stuff like that. If you look overall, according to the OECD, Britain has um, among uh, the least regulated uh, labour and product markets in the EU. So the notion that they are higher as a result of the EU, uh, I find uh, unconvincing. Let me just conclude by saying, of course, we don't know um, what uh, arrangement would exist if Britain were to leave. Uh, I think it's hard to, it's hard to argue uh, that our relationship with Europe uh, would be on better terms than it is now. We have a fantastic deal where we are opting out of the euro, opting out of things that we don't like, uh, and still full members uh, uh, economically and benefiting uh, in that way. Thank you. Thank you very much, Philippe. Uh, <coughs> Well, first of all, I should say that um, the question, I think, is slightly difficult because it implies that you should trust economics. And uh, for those of you who have, still have recollection of the financial crisis of only seven years ago, where the Queen asked at uh, LSE the famous question of the economists that had been assembled there, why didn't any of you see this coming, um, makes me suggest that we need to go beyond economics to look at this, and it's profoundly about more than just economics. It's a political judgment, and what the political judgment is about is about our appetite for risk. To what extent are we prepared to take a leap in the somewhat dark, and no amount of reports that will come out between now and when that referendum happens will be sufficient to really explain what will happen afterwards, because a counterfactual, we cannot know. Um, we know what membership means. We've been there for about 50 years. We don't know what non-membership means, because the only two examples there are, Norway and Switzerland, are both so different to us. Um, it's, Norway has a population of about 5 million. Switzerland has a population of about 8 million. Uh, Norway is oil-rich, so its economy is hugely affected by the Sovereign Wealth Fund and the choices it makes as such. Switzerland has a completely different economic model, economic and constitutional model, that affects it hugely. So there is no blueprint. This is a tabula rasa. 
And um, one thing that we do know is that Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, on which our Brexit, were it to happen, would be predicated, is a take-it-or-leave-it article. Um, it doesn't provide for any kind of negotiation, uh, the extent to which concessions would have to be made in a negotiation. All it does is give us a steer that expects negotiations to be complete within two years. Two years is a really mm. short time frame when you're disentangling 50 years of law. So the question comes, is the UK so different from, from the rest of the EU that Brexit would be good for us? And this is where I think we have a most level of consensus among the economists to the extent that there is one. Uh, Philippe talked about the budget and the budget contribution uh, and so on. We know that the two countries, the models that we know, Norway and Switzerland, which are out, still make huge contributions to the budget, even though, to the EU, even though they are out. In Norway's case, it's 80, 80, around 90% of um, uh, per capita, and Switzerland's case is about 45% per capita. So in terms of savings that you, we will get if we leave, there won't be very much change left from savings. But the savings that we have assume at the moment that maybe we will save some money. The costs of Brexit, as again Philippe mentioned, uh, would depend on several other intangibles, single market membership or a free trade agreement. Um, Norway has membership of the single market. Switzerland doesn't. And they have very different experiences. If you talk to politicians in both countries, they, you know, they implore you not to go in their direction because they pay for the price for not being at the table while decisions are imposed on them. Uh, we, could have a no, uh, we could have no free trade agreement whatsoever and negotiate them independently well, those are extremely hard to do, not just in the case of uh, the example that Philippe gave, uh, but, and, and we know that TTIP is looming in front of us, Transatlantic Trade and Agreement <coughs> Partnership. Of course, that won't depend. I mean, the idea that the UK could have some sort of agreement with the US when you have this comprehensive thing in front of us is, I think, slightly um, optimistic. In fact, whether TTIP goes ahead in terms of the EU or not depends really on whether Hillary Clinton gets elected to the White House because she's now said she's decidedly against it. So um, I can't see that it's really clear to us that membership of the EU is a hindrance to international trade. But I'll leave that to Philippe to come back with and perhaps we'll pick it up in, in other questions. The one single point you should be aware of is that it, when you're a skeptic, tell you that we would strike all these trade agreements that would, we could enhance our trade with the rest of the world, ask them why Germany has four times the amount of trade with China that we do, despite the fact that we had Hong Kong and we have historical links to China. So the idea, the reason that, we, that they have higher trade with China, for example, than we do, I think has more to do with the state of our economy, the state of our skills, the things we produce rather than a simple equation that the EU holds us back from having trade with China. Um, trade with the EU is an important thing, and I'll conclude on that. The EU at the moment accounts for about 50% of our exports. And so Eurosceptics again say, well, they sell more to us, slightly more, 53% or something. Uh, they sell more to us than we sell to them. So frankly, it would be they need us more than we need them. Actually, our trade 
in terms of the percentage of trade that EU countries do with us, it is only 10%. Only 10% of the EU28's trading weight is directed towards the United Kingdom. So as a negotiation, negotiating position, I would say it's a pretty feeble negotiating position. Um, I would just conclude on a final point. that I think you need to think in the political judgment of the EU as a means to an end, and I'll give you a quote. For us, the EU is a means to an end. Prosperity, stability, the anchor of freedom and democracy, both within Europe and beyond her shores. Not an end in itself. This was said by a man called David Cameron in his famous speech on the EU in January 2013. I think we need to bear that in mind when he makes us go to the polls before 2017. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Phil. Thanks. Well, I agree with Philippe that the, uh, the question we've been posed is, sets the bar pretty low. So um, I'm going to say not only uh, can the British economy survive leaving the EU, but I think that it will then have a much better prospect for thriving. But my case for leaving has got absolutely nothing to do, with respect to my fellow panellists, with the various estimates of the financial uh, costs and benefits of staying or of leaving. Uh, and uh, to sort of uh, familiarise, there will be a lot more of those, or to uh, set expectations, there will be a lot more of those over the next 6, 12, 18 months or, or whatever. I am in favour of free movement of goods, capital, labour not just with Europe, but with the rest of the world. That's my uh, 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 position. But my economic case for leaving the EU uh, is based on a democratic argument, the democratic argument, uh, uh, and specifically on the matter of the political accountability uh, of economic policy. Now, fundamentally, the problems I'll be describing, I think, are domestic problems, but they take an external form, namely the European Union as an institution. My argument then relates, in fact, to why I think all the financial calculations uh, on both sides of the referendum campaign are inherently flawed and meaningless. The true costs and benefits of either decision, staying in or leaving, are simply unquantifiable today because they are contingent on what happens after the referendum result. The economics of either situation, in or out, is not static or predetermined, but depends in particular on the policies uh, that a British government would pursue. Now, and in the period up to the referendum, and the period after the referendum. And I'm not just talking about how a British government would, if it stays in, continue to handle the challenges of being a member of the EU, or I'm not saying how it would handle uh, exit negotiations, or the establishment of these new free trade agreements that uh, a, a, a non-EU Britain would need to enter into. I'm talking more broadly that the economy of the future is much more dependent on what sort of industrial and economic policies the government is implementing than it is on whether Britain or is or out of any particular trade uh, grouping or any particular economic grouping. And it is on the question of the ability to pursue an appropriate set of economic and industrial policies, uh, which doesn't prove, but I think well illustrates, the democratic case uh, for leaving uh, the EU. Now, we can have very different views, and we do have very different views, I know, I'm sure, on the panel, and I'm sure in their own audience, as to what are the sort of economic policies that Britain needs to get its economy moving again. Myself, I've written and argued uh, extensively that we need a very radical, uh, transformative type of industrial policy in order to renew the economy. 
But that's by the by. The by. Any policy, to be effective, is something that requires open and extensive public discussion in society. And it requires full political accountability. If it's just a, an elitist decision up there to do this, do that, and we see a lot of that at the moment in terms of economic policy, if it's not something that people buy into and take part of, then it's pretty meaningless. And it is that which EU membership restricts. With the European Union, I think, epitomising... Uh, a contempt for the participation of people in uh, decision-making and the abrogation of, uh, uh, of democratic uh, 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 politics. Quite simply, what am I arguing is that for as long as we remain in the EU, there will be less accountability for our policies, including our economic policies, and less scope for changing them. Whereas being outside the EU at least gives us the possibilities for fighting for the sort of policies that we need. Now, this argument for exit, therefore, is not at all, I'm going to stress this, is not at all based on an assessment of particular EU policies or regulations today, or which may be introduced tomorrow. It's not a matter of anticipating what, what might go wrong in the, in the future. It's, whether, it's not based on whether they're perceived, or I perceive them, or you perceive them as good or bad policies, but on the principle, the principle of the uh, restoring democratic accountability for them. Today, member countries, member peoples, have lost sovereign control over a wide range of areas to appointed elites, whether it's the commissioners in, in Brussels or the judges uh, in, in Luxembourg. These are people that national electorates cannot throw out. So, for example, when the European Court of Justice recently ruled, I think it was in September, ruled that the time spent by employees <coughs> based at home travelling to and from work should be regarded as working time and therefore paid for, now, we might think that that's a good policy or a bad policy. We might think it's fair or unfair to other workers who, who do have a, 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 a fixed location. But the core political point is that as national citizens, there is nothing that we can do to reverse it. We can't enforce political policy accountability by replacing those European Court of Justice judges. Even for Britain, which, being outside the euro, as, uh, as Philippe made the point, is not today covered by the most invasive forms of Brussels intervention, the EU already influences regional funding, state aid for industry, employment rights and laws, financial regulations, policies for transport, the environment, energy, agriculture and fisheries. I agree they don't set them, I agree with Philippe, but they set the framework for them which national governments uh, may or may not implement. But all of those areas of EU influence have a bearing on national economic policy. So the point I want to stress in ending is that this democratic argument for leaving is not about vilifying nasty Brussels technocrats and bureaucrats over there who are doing all these nasty things to us, in contrast to the nice, cuddly, friendly British politicians who are these saintly Democrats. On the contrary, the source of the problem we have, which I'm discussing, is, and the source of the derogation of political accountability is located in London, it's located here, it's located in Paris, it's located in Berlin, it's located in the other national uh, capitals, not located in, in uh, EU headquarters. But it is the European Union as an institution that most sharply expresses this anti-democratic trend. In a sense, I, I would argue that the European Union's ascendancy as a uh, bureaucratic technocracy is enabled by, I'd even go as far as to say it's been made possible by, it's been, it's been caused by the decay of democratic politics in the various nation states, not least in Britain. And that's the responsibility of the different uh, national political elites. For an illustration, 
that the biggest problem we have, I think, is at home, even though it takes the external form of the European Union, look no further than Cameron's uh, secrecy over his wish list for the reforms of the EU. You know, he does not want to share, engage in a political discussion with the electorate of Britain as to what the reforms are that he's pushing for. Now, he's now, as we know, for the last few days, it's not the pressure of the British people that he's responding to. He's now, because of the different national elites in Europe, are saying, you know, if we're to tango with you, we've got to know what you're going to say. He may well publish that wish list. But the uh, opaqueness and the secrecy with which he's been conducting this uh, reform as a background to a big national referendum, I think exemplifies, thank you, exemplifies the undemocratic and anti-political features of the British situation, as well as the relationship between Britain and uh, the EU. So, whether the EU acts as culprit, as it does in some cases, but I think that's probably overstated, or is overstated by a lot of the Eurosceptics, or whether the EU acts as a scapegoat for limiting democratic public engagement, we need to leave it, so that we can start to fight to regain national control and accountability for policies being pursued on our behalf, not least in order to be able to have the sovereign right and possibility of changing economic and industrial policies for the better, which is something our economy sorely needs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. Um, now I'm going to welcome, uh, um, who's arrived um, at the end there, uh, uh, Matthew Kirk, who's the um, uh, Group External Affairs Director for Vodafone. And uh, I've already mentioned that you're sponsoring the, um, or Vodafone is sponsoring the uh, event, so, or this debate, so thank you very much for coming. And I know why you're late, but uh, you don't have to reiterate if you don't want to. But um, thank you very much for coming, and uh, it's five minutes of introductions, I think you know, so... You're most welcome to carry on. Thank you. Yep. So uh, the exam question for the thing is, can the British economy survive Brexit? Obviously the answer is yes. I think the more interesting question is um, what the longer-term implications are of remaining uh, part of the European Union or leaving it. Um, and there it seems to me that there are, there are three broad factors that I would like to put into the debate. The first is that I think this century is developing into a century of economies of scale. Um, and you have some natural economies of scale, the United States, Japan, China, India, and so forth. You see some other areas like Southeast Asia where countries are coming together um, in an arrangement which may develop into something not dissimilar to the European Union, again, to create economy, an, an economy of scale. And the European Union is itself an economy of scale. Um, and I think the digitization that is happening to the economy, the underlying use of digital technology, uh, to change the way economies works, itself naturally drives scale. Um, so for the United Kingdom uh, to decide not to be part of an economy of scale would seem a rather perverse decision when the trend of uh, economies is in the opposite direction. The second important reason, I think, is to do with trade relationships, and various other panellists have mentioned this already. Um, trade relationships are increasingly based on various attempts to... <coughs> Uh, model uh, a world trade order have uh, reached their limits fairly quickly. So trade relationships are increasingly based on bilateral negotiations. And in those negotiations, um, negotiating between two parties who have roughly equal sets of interests uh, creates a, a better, a stronger agreement uh, than negotiating from weakness uh, towards strength. And so I think there, there is considerable advantage to the United Kingdom in continuing to be part of Europe's wider trade relationships. Both of those two suggest to me that whatever the result of the referendum and whatever we do, 
um, after the, the referendum, whether we vote to leave or vote to stay, we will remain trying to work in a way uh, within uh, a large part of the, um, the European economic system. Uh, it's, there are neighbours um, and our largest trading partner and so forth. Um, and that leads to my third point, which is that I think that we would actually lose sovereignty by leaving. Um, that we would lose the ability to shape and influence decisions which will have a profound effect on how our economy would work. Today we are at the table, we're only one voice at the table, but we're a powerful and significant voice at the table. Were we to leave, we would find these decisions being taken at a table at which we were simply not present. We wouldn't practically have the choice whether to follow them or not. Um, we would have to continue the kind of trade relationship that we have with Europe today. So while I believe that the European Union as it is now is far from perfect, and I agree with Phil that it and nation states need to become more democratically accountable, um, I do not believe that leaving it would be in our long-term interests. I've spent a great deal of my life in France. I was partially educated there um, and have worked there a lot, and I have many French friends. And they look at our debate with, in a state of total bemusement. As far as they can see it, we have all of the benefits of being a member of the European Union and have avoided at least half of the obligations. They think that is a perfect position for any country to be in and one that they wish they were in themselves. Why would we give it up? Thank <laughs> okay. Thank you very much uh, indeed, Matthew. Run. Finally, um, Thomas. Uh, thank you, Peter. It's a bad position to be in to be the last because all the main points have been made before. In the old <coughs> days of the nuclear theology, we used to call this a decapitating first strike. Believing <laughs> 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 there's very little retaliatory forces. <laughs> Uh, in addition, for someone from outside, from Germany, to speak in this debate, all smacks of unwanted interference and uh, <laughs> mind, your own, mind your own business, you might say. So perhaps I will take the cautious route of asking questions of some of my colleague uh, panellists here. Mm, um, Baroness Faulkner um, reminded us of the British appetite for risk. Could you just put the microphone a little bit this is, this is what I... Bring it a bit nearer. What I... Uh, is my feeling after 16 years in, in Britain that I do see a great uh, um, deal of preparedness for risk in this country, quite unlike uh, uh, other uh, countries in, in, uh, on the continent, I very nearly said unlike Germany, but that has recently changed because the risk we have taken in Germany vis-à-vis -vis refugees is colossal and totally unquantifiable and, and really... Uh, runs counter to the way we used to evaluate our Chancellor as a prudent woman who more often than not likes to sit on the fence and waits until he has more facts available and then comes to a decision. She is given to rather snap and rash kind of decisions. Uh, so it's uh, no longer true that, that Britain is the only one uh, that, that goes for risks. I mean, politically, the Labour Party has taken a huge risk recently by appointing uh, uh, Jeremy uh, Corbyn as their new leader, which to me uh, was a refreshing decision to make, and I applauded it in my paper, uh, because um, although we are a conservative paper, I said it's high time there is an opposing view in this country to be taken, so that the intellectual and political debate is, is refreshed by other points of view, and that not everyone in the political culture sings from the same hymn sheet. Mm, uh, and... Um, so uh, that, that is essential. In, in um, the people that Corbyn speaks for, and I'm slightly digressing from our uh, debate here, 
are what used to be called in Churchill's days the, the uh, overlooked millions. Um, because when Churchill was uh, Chancellor and um, domestic uh, secretary, he, he was in favour of um, reforming the um, welfare state and he coined that phrase, the overlooked millions, and they are being taken up by the present leader of the Labour Party. So risk-taking, risk-taking is in the British gene and, and therefore not to worry what might happen if you leave the EU is perhaps not the most uh, um, uh, deterrent thing to say. In fact, I believe that if the in campaign continues to paint the, the, all the negative consequences and, and, and the risks and, and attended to it. Uh, I'm reminded of Hamlet's monologue. The fear of something after death keeps us back from making the decision of ending our life. So the fear of what happened to Britain after the exit is used as a, as a, um, a template and an argument against leaving. But that in itself, I don't think, is going to convince uh, many people. And, and also, it's been said by, by Phil the unpredictability and the unknowability of the future is essential. I'm not convinced by either camp, the in or out economic issues, that they in themselves can, can, be, can stand in two or three years from now. The world is adrift. The world is changing. And, and when, when um, um, we just heard from Matthew that um, economies of scale demand that you should be part of it. Look at the deal Britain is now entering with China about building a new atomic plant with a huge amount of money involved. I need to be corrected when I say that this was done on an individual basis without very much of EU input. So who's to say that this sort of deal cannot be had in the future? Britain is outside the EU. This is a question I'm putting. Maybe it would, it would be put by the audience as well. I'm, I'm therefore you know, somewhat conflicted about the, the two arguments that can be turned in either way. Um, uh, Yanan Ganesh in the Financial Times um, recently made a wonderful argument when he said, either in or out is not going to change much of history because if Britain stays in, she will continue to make herself unpopular by demanding domestic, um, uh, democratic accountability, by demanding the EU of the democracy deficit. So she will continue to, to, to um, dissent from some of the basic principles if she stays inside. If she's outside, she will try to be the best of friends with Europe in order to prove that nothing has changed and she remains a European nation. Um, that, that is an interesting, interesting uh, point of view. Uh, so um, I'll, 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 leave, I'll leave my um, argument here to say um, uh, um, you have to wait and see. We have to have more facts and figures in. They're very difficult to calculate. Yogi Berra said predictions are very difficult, especially about the future. Uh, and uh, on that note, let me just think. <laughs> right, OK, well, thank you very much. We've touched on a lot of things there. We're going to go out and, and ask questions. I'm just going to say one thing, which is it surprises me that nobody on the panel has, has mentioned the fact that the EU is a, uh, as a sort of economy as a whole has been doing very badly and trying to explain mm. why that is the case and whether that actually affects the way we um, should think about ourselves. So one of the questions I'm certainly going to ask the panel in, in due course and to think about is the degree to which the poor performance of the EU might be affecting the performance of the UK, or are we completely separate? Because we've been doing much better recently, maybe for other reasons. 
but certainly there are some issues around the EU and its structure I would like people to look at whether or not they are affecting the economic performance. Phil touched on one or two, but there's a lot more to think about as to where that's going, including, of course, the other thing which I haven't really talked about, which is we've got, by definition, a two-speed Europe coming up now because we are going to have a Eurozone which is going to be run differently every chance that it will be hurtling towards ever closer union to make the, the, to make the economic system work for them. So let's, um, let's just make sure we cover some of the big issues that are going um, to go along there. So, right, so microphones at the ready, please, uh, team. And uh, there's a guy there, blonde hair, uh, I can see the first question. Um, so my theoretical prize and my reading of the evidence such as it is is that the effects, the economic effects of Britain's membership of the EU in either direction, good or bad, are pretty small. Um, certainly I've not seen any convincing evidence that our membership of the EU has led to any net trade or investment creation as opposed to simply diversion. Uh, and certainly if you look at things on a macro scale, at all the different influences on Britain's net trade position, our membership of the EU is surely overwhelmed by things such as um, exchange rate movements, trends in domestic demand, trends in offshoring and reshoring, what's going on in China, in EMs, etc., etc. And so, in sum, I think um, all the sort of fever talk about the potential negative economic impacts of Brexit, it's basically scaremongering by people who are unwilling or unable to put the political case for continued British membership of the EU. Okay, thank you very much. Just, just a list of three quick points. You mentioned about clout. Um, the EU, as we all know, has, has been running a German-France axis. That's not going to change. So we don't really have clout in the, within the EU. Um, quite apart from the difference in, in economic direction between the EU and us, is the difference between the EU and the rest of the world. As Mr Farage regularly comments, the global economy is expanding, the EU economy is, is contracting. Indeed, it's, it's bankrupt as well as corrupt. Uh, economic tensions, as obviously demonstrated in Greece and shortly in other countries, is going to kill it uh, alone, never mind the migration crisis that's looming. The other thing is the EU wants to destroy the city. The city provides 25% of all of the uh, government's income. We cannot manage without it. Uh, and generally, EU red tape is hindering business. And this is no more uh, apparent than in uh, the prevention of uh, strategic industrial investment. For example, look at Redcar. We need a strategic uh, steel industry uh, for the rest, of the rest of our manufacturers. Thanks. Uh, Matt, you say that there's a need for nation states to become more democrat democratically accountable. What you didn't mention was the, the EU essentially is a political project and with the euro crisis that we've had, we're just going to be looking at more fiscal harmonisation and political integration, are we not? Please could you comment on that? Yeah, I, I just think um, it's, I think if we've learned anything over the past century, if, if nothing else, it's that economies do rise and they do fall and I think it's, it'd be interesting to hear both the, um, the crowd and the panel's views on how we need to not only think of ourselves and, and what's important for England, but what's important for the um, economy of Europe. Because in the end, we, it's, we're not this great, huge power anymore. We are just, we need to accept we are a small island. And it is a bit obnoxious at times to think that we're this incredible force that has a, such a power. And it'd be interesting to know how people think, uh, what people think rather, about our position as an um, economy within a global economy rather than just an economy of ourselves. Okay, thank you very much. And the gentleman here, last one for now, and then we'll come back out in a second. We'll go back to the panel first. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to thank Phil particularly, because I think right at the beginning of this debate, I was absolutely astounded that all we were going to talk about was economy. 
And it's rather like discussing marriage and saying it's a great institution because you can have a house together and you can have a joint account. <laughs> when in fact it's all about relationships and it's to do with our relationship with Europe. And my objection is his, I think, is a, <clears throat> a massive democratic accountability. And that is absolutely vital. We're always talking about it's not democratic. And here we have an organisation which is undemocratic. The other thing is a practical thing. With 28 members and continually saying, let's have another lot, it's completely sclerotic. It's seized, it doesn't know how to act, and this is now exposed with the migration issue. And so far from being 28 chaps, all get together and have a nice photo opportunity where they all agree, in fact they don't agree. And, uh, <clears throat> and so what you're getting is nationalist, national interest, which actually is what democratic accountability is all about. And in my view, it will probably implode and the migration crisis will be the beginning of that implosion. Okay. That's some great um, topics that we can now pursue with the panel. I, I, I will say one thing. I, I find it quite remarkable in all the debates about um, uh, Britain and the EU and the rest of the world that, that people find it difficult to think of a fifth largest economy, one of the most successful countries in the world, finding it difficult to actually organise uh, free trade agreements and the like. It's uh, peculiar, as though we're this small island, but actually we are the fifth largest economy in the world, so I strongly suspect most people would like to trade with us. So I'm going to throw in one other thing which I'd like to comment in from the panel, which is that there are several other major um, trading organisations across the world, uh, ASEAN, the South American one, Mercosur, there's the North American Free Trade um, Association, and none of these people seem to think that they have to keep on talking about giving up their sovereignty or rights to determine their own laws and the like in the way that we do. Um, so why, why is it that we have to go along with that as well as, um, um, as, as the rest? And just to add to the points which have been made, I want to make sure that we cover the, the, the degree to which the institutions of the EU or the EU itself may potentially be damaging as well as good because I think there's no question that it can be good for the economic activity of the UK and trying to sort of hit that one on the head. So with that in mind, I'd, I'd ask the panel to speak about any of the questions, but not all of them, that have come up and just address the ones that they'd like to. So, Kishwa, would you like to go on any of them? Um, there's several, actually, so I'll try and keep... How long have we got? Because that helps. About a minute and a half. A minute and a half, OK. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the person, first one about scaremongering, political scaremongering. Actually, I really support the idea of a referendum. And have done. Liberal Democrats completely agree that there should be democratic accountability periodically. So that's, it's not that we can't make a political case. I just made a political case to open with by saying that the economic case is not sufficient of itself. Um, the EU wanting to destroy the city, that was the second one. EU red trade destroy, destroying business. I mean, there is nothing further from the truth. Um, because, if you think back, it is this country that had the severest, deepest financial crisis among the EU28. It is this country that established a commission on banking standards that has recommended higher regulatory burdens than recommended for the Eurozone, where the sovereign, sovereign debt loop has been pretty ghastly. And it is this country that has negotiated with the EU that we should be allowed to keep our higher standards because we feel they're really necessary because of the complexity and the global role of the City of London. So actually, we're wanting higher standards, we have higher standards, and that's where, we're sitting, that's where we are. So the idea that it goes the other way around 
It is true, once in a while, financial transaction tax and things like that intrude, and we test that. We go to court where necessary. We won in court when we have gone to court. The European court, the same European court that gave such a bad ruling the other day on something else. But when otherwise, we opt out. And in that sense, we are in this hugely privileged role of, uh, of having said no at the right time. Again, political risk and political judgment, having said no at the right time, whereby we have the luxury of being able to do pretty much our own thing while still benefiting from the membership of the club. And so the final thing I would say, uh, the, the gentleman over there, I was going to slightly say you were young, but I shouldn't do that. It sounds patronising. Um, small island space in the world. If you look at the size, we may be the fifth largest country, the chairman said. Well, if you take the economy of Japan, China, US, and then you take our economy... We may be the fifth largest, but the difference between being the largest and the fifth largest is a long way. So I would, I would be careful in my use of statistics. Phil, would you like to um, come in on anything particular? I, um, yes, I'm happy to. Um, the, the issue of trade is the main uh, point that's been put forward to say that there would be a cost of leaving uh, the European Union. I am in favour of free trade, right? Not just with Europe, but globally. I'd like to see free trade. But I have to say that trade is not the most important thing when it comes to economic prosperity. You can have freer trade agreements with everywhere in the world. If you've got an uncompetitive, unproductive economy, you're not going to be able to export into those countries. At the moment, there is a much bigger problem than who we have access to trade or which trading uh, agreement we have or not which is that productivity has been flat for the last uh, eight years and that there's been too little investment to actually create the dynamic which would allow Britain to be exporting more into Germany, more into China, more into America, more into any, any other part, part of the world. And what it is that's getting in the way of the uh, ability to restructure the economy here takes us to not the sort of economic question of Europe, but to the political question. And the EU, we're talking about, is a political institution. I want to be part of Europe, and I think at the moment the EU is the biggest barrier to being part of Europe and to being a successful part of Europe. It is that which is undermining, not through external intervention. I'm not arguing there's too much regulation coming from Brussels. That's not my argument. What I'm saying is that national politicians, particularly the British elite, has been using the EU as a way of avoiding taking political responsibility for policies in general, and in particular for economic policy. When it comes to the last, the most important political trend of the last sort of 20 years has been this, what I call this depoliticisation, this avoidance of political responsibility, and this tendency to outsource authority and responsibility to other non-elected parties. And, and groups and institutions. We saw the Labour Party did it with uh, outsourcing monetary policy to the Bank of England, a general trend across the Western world. We see it last week, two weeks ago, with the outsourcing of infrastructure policy to, a nat- to, a, to an independent National Infrastructure Commission. Everything is outsourced away from politics, which I think is the biggest problem we have because it disengages people from actually doing things which can actually change things for the better. And the most extreme form of that outsourcing, which we've seen, has been to Brussels, has been precisely to say, we can't do this, or we can do that, or whatever, it's down to Brussels has told us to do that. Just to finish with an example, you, you raised the red car 
uh, closure uh, confirmed in the, in the last couple of weeks. The important thing to me about the red car closure and the statements made by government ministers when they said there's nothing we can do because of the EU is not to look at those state aid rules which were being used by uh, uh, the, the government ministers to say that there's nothing they can do to help restructure the economy. The point is that was the fact that they claimed an, an avoidance of being able to do anything by blaming the EU. The EU exists as an alibi, as a mechanism by which national elites, not just British elites, but in Germany, in France, all across Europe, it's a mechanism by which national elites can avoid their responsibility by passing the buck onto the EU. Okay. And that's why I'm against the EU, okay. because it, Thank you. it expresses that, epitomises that tendency. Thank you, Phil. And um, Philippe? Well, most of your points, Phil, are basically a critique of... Britain's economy yeah. and British policymakers, and you think that the EU is an alibi for the failings uh, of, the, of British policymakers. Now, if your analysis is correct, why don't you think that if we left the EU, they wouldn't find another alibi? Exactly. What mechanism do you think is going to bring about the change um, uh, that you think is desirable and necessary? I think actually, I mean, I agree with some of the points that you make. I think that we need more democratic accountability. Uh, in Britain. We need more democratic accountability uh, in the EU. The EU itself uh, needs reform. I don't see how um, leaving the EU would make us better off, and I don't see how leaving the EU would achieve the kind of political change that you want to, change, want to achieve, and I don't see why you can't lobby for the kind of political change you want to see while remaining in the EU. I think actually it's a bit of a, a, of a red herring. Okay, thank you. And briefly, Matthew. I'm going to come at you later, Thomas. Thank you. Um, if I could quickly address three of the points that came from the floor. First of all, the migration crisis. And I'd agree that uh, neither this country nor um, uh, the EU has handled the migration crisis particularly well. But I do wonder what it would have been like if there had been no EU framework within which to handle it uh, where, with individual states just doing their own thing. Um, I think we would have found it much harder. Um, and I think the EU can provide a good framework for coming together to handle some of these issues. Secondly, the question uh, over here, I think, on polit political accountability and integration, I think is a very interesting one. Um, where the UK sits in the EU at the moment is not one that will particularly affect us because the drive for greater integration will come through the Eurozone. Um, at the moment, you have within the EU a slightly schizophrenic structure with uh, the European Parliament on the one hand, uh, a direct democracy, uh, body, which I think many people would argue doesn't work particularly well and is not particularly representative because it has lowered suffrage in every country except Luxembourg, where voting is compulsory. Um, and then you have national democracy reflected through, uh, through national representation in the Council of Ministers. And I think at some stage the Eurozone will have to decide which model it's going to go for, and I think that will be a very difficult debate, but not, as I say, one which will have a particular implication for the UK. And finally, on the question of giving up sovereignty, which underlies a great deal of the debate. I spent the first 25 years of my career as a diplomat. Uh, I negotiated a number of treaties, and I worked with many. Uh, this country has thousands of treaties uh, to which it is bound. Every time you enter into a treaty, you limit your sovereignty. It's something nations are doing the entire time, and you always have the ability to decide to reverse that uh, reduction of your sovereignty if you think it would be to your advantage to do so. The referendum gives an opportunity to have that debate in the UK, and I think the debate is a good thing. Um, but to project the EU as the only area uh, in which we are giving up sovereignty is simply wrong. Thank you. 
Okay, I'm going to go out for questions. Uh, let's go to the back this time. Um, I think that the, the alibi question is uh, important. And uh, if you look at the uh, immigration issue, you can see how that's been extremely damaging uh, over the last 10, 15 years. The last Labour government operated an effective open-door policy, but without engaging in a public debate in this country as to why that is, would be a good idea. The consequence of that was the rise of UKIP and 4 million people voting in the last election uh, for UKIP, pretty much simply because of the immigration issue. And if it weren't for the quirks of the British political system, we'd have 60 or 70 UKIP MP MPs in the House of Parliament. And it, it isn't simply ab about the, the, um, the, the consequence in terms of the rise of populist movements, which are happening all over Europe, but the centrifugal character now of the EU that as the centre, the people who are committed to ever closer union become more and more convinced. They're throwing away and repelling larger and larger numbers of people from the concept of a united Europe itself. It's extremely damaging and in, uh, over the long term. And I fear that Germany is only just about to begin to experience that process themselves because the same thing happened there, was that that policy of effective open-door uh, to refugees was not something which, had, uh, which uh, was not an argument that had been won with the German people. And the, uh, similarly, the EU's imposition of refugee quotas on unwilling East European countries is also going to have unfortunate political consequences. So, you know, you can't separate the economics from the politics in this. If you have an unstable political union, an unpopular political union, a resentful and sullen population of Europeans, you cannot have an effective economic union. Um, my question to the panel is that if TTIP negotiations were to succeed and Brexit happened, what negotiating power do you think the UK will have to form a similar deal with the US and what would the cost be of being left out of the TTIP? Could I just question um, the or how useful a referendum would be in choosing whether the UK leaves the EU or the England leaves the EU, considering how this is a highly emotional issue, sort of which the public might view in the quite short-term view um, and not consider the long-term complex issues behind it. <laughs> you have to come to a few more debates like this, aren't they? <laughs> I'm afraid. There's a lady here down at the front. The EU has not produced its accounts in over 20 years. We joined the Hanseatic League, not the Fourth Reich, and I have found a reference to the EU in Mein Kampf. There are over 100,000 pages of regulations out of the EU, of which Norway only has to follow a few. But it, the EU extends its, its interference beyond trade. It interferes in daily life, in local councils, in vacuum cleaners, and stops us vaccinating cattle. Uh, the free movement of people, my friends and relations of different nationalities, never had a problem. Jobs never affected my work in defence and telecoms, but I can't run a company under EU regs. Unfortunately, nothing of any use has come out of Brussels since the sprout. But how can the panel defend the most evil export from the EU, and that's VAT, the tax that's paid by little people on just about everything? Okay. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Does anybody else want to say anything? We've got any other questions? One, please. Um, 
So, yeah, I just want to agree with the fact that I think immigration is healthy and I think it is necessary. I think it is a good thing, whether you're a skilled or an unskilled worker. But I do wonder if the panel could demystify the idea that perhaps accepting uh, workers who are willing to accept a wage that is, for them, relatively high, is it that possible that that is keeping our wages lower? Okay. Thank you very much. Well, let's come back to the panel on a few of those issues. So, again, same thing. Who would... Don't pick up everything, but if you'd like to pick up one or two of the issues, then Thomas, yeah. would you like to? I think flexibility is the issue here at the heart of all this. Uh, whether if you remain in the EU, whether you remain in the EU, you have enough flexibility to, you, to do your own thing, as it were, outside EU regulations. I remind you of the Lisbon agenda in the year 2000, when the EU determined that by the next decade they will have overtaken America and there will be the most far-reaching and flexible um, 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 congregation of states. It didn't happen, as we know. Lots of EU countries have become more centralized and more sclerotic in their economic performance, whereas Britain has thrived and become a more uh, forward-looking and a more successful economy. And, and this also applies to the idea of having clout. What is there to be gained from having clout in an economy in, on the continent which is lagging behind the, the forward uh, mobility of the British economy? Uh, that is not, doesn't sound very convincing. And, and, the, and the flexibility argument, now the chicken are really coming home to roost. Whether you are allowed to take exceptions to the general idea of free movement in Europe, full stop, without any conditions applied to it. I think Germany, as it was mentioned before, is coming to that very point, fork in the road. We will have to think of conditions to apply in order to, um, to uh, receive um, a free movement of people. That applies to member states. You have to be allowed to make conditions uh, on, on the kind of immigrants you need, except of just opening the door, as it were, without any considerations. Um, it sounds nice in, in principle, but when, when we all hit uh, harder times, uh, you will soon see that the principles are good for nothing unless you can do something to calibrate your response to your actual needs. I, I was reminded, I don't know who said it the other day, if Turkey becomes a member of the EU, because that's probably the only way the Germans can negotiate a Turkish agreement to stop the flow of ma migrants in their country, in, in return will we'll allow you to become a member of the EU more quickly. That means another 95 million people having free movement in Europe. I mean, this may be a, scare, scare, a, scare, a scary scenario. I don't think we will get there in a hurry. But the principle remains, you have to have flexibility, flexibility in order to deal with, with, with free movement in Europe. Um, and and, and that, is, uh, that is a problem that um, Cameron is going to encounter, whether he's going to negotiate that or not. Um, uh, not to belong to the ever closer union, I think we will, we will let Britain get away with that. Uh, she's not an ever closer anyway because she doesn't belong to the Eurozone and she doesn't belong to the ever closer integration that will have to happen in that Eurozone. But the flexibility on immigration is, is, is a crucial point. And, and that impinges on the sovereignty that you have to be able to choose what kind of immigration you want and what kind of jobs you want and not just be imposed upon you the general principle of unlimited freedom of movement. I don't think in the current um, state of the world scene that can be left to survive that principle. Okay, thank you. Kishwa? Uh, I want to give that the, the comment by the gentleman who spoke first about the alibi being important mm. and democracy and the rise of UKIP and so on. You know, that's terribly important. And... But I think that what you need to think about when you go to vote in this referendum 
is whether you throw out, as I think Harold Wilson said, a thousand years of history, um, whether you throw out the entire British constitutional structure by uh, wanting a change. I don't think that'll happen. You're going to be stuck with the same old, same old, same old, uh, which, um, alas, I represent. Um, so maybe I can say that. And, but there are some pretty profound questions to do with democracy. I mean, will Scotland be part of the United Kingdom? We, you know, that is supposedly the price we will pay if we decide to exit. I'm not entirely clear it'll happen, but it could well happen. So I go back to the risk. These are political risks, political judgments, and we cannot know the answer. But I did want to pick up one or two comments because I chair the Financial Affairs Committee of the House of Lords. One or two points on the issue of regulation. We have, in this country, a record of something called gold plating. So the EU agrees something, and what Whitehall does is add in a couple of layers of extra regulation that civil servants had on the top shelf that they pull off and say, oh, this is a good opportunity. So, for example, one tangible example was that we had higher climate change rules, I gave you the other ones earlier, than were required by Europe. We did that because the public, democratically, had elected a government that believed that was important. So if you really want democracy, you've got to live with the democratic outcome of what you want. Um, the OECD says that the UK has some of the least product market regulation in the world, and the evidence on the whole shows that our burden of regulation is actually rather lower than you would expect for, for a developed country. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to uh, insert a couple of things for people to think about at this point. One is to, to go back to this point of the failure of the EU, which I don't think we really are talking about enough. It may not necessarily matter for the actual argument about Brexit, but it's quite important to understand. And, uh, and this is the way of illustrating it. In 1980, there were nine members of the EU, and they represented 30% of global output. In 2015, there were 28 and they represent 17% of global output, just to give a flavour of what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years. And it, it's possible that our focus was originally on the EU for good reason, and maybe one of the arguments will be that we should look at the opportunities in these small, I emphasise, countries doing quite well, the Far East and, and other places. They're not all big, big countries, so I throw that in. And the second thing, on the reform point... So people have mentioned reform is necessary. Philippe mentioned it, uh, and he's going to come back on it, I know, because I'm going to say what they are, because it's not a secret um, what the reform agenda of the Tory government is. They have said, and he said this in his Bloomberg speech, competitiveness and regulation, that's economic, that's got to change, he said. Um, and they, they, that's on the agenda to discuss. Sovereignty and competences, which is the degree to which we make our own decisions, obviously, um, new and clearer relationship with the Eurozone clearly has got to be a, ch a change at some point, if not now, some point. Uh, and fourthly, the, the immigration issues which we touched on, mm. which is that something is going to change on the immigration and the rules around that, even if it's only well on the welfare side. So it is clear the main areas, and if anybody's got any comments on whether those are good things or bad things, then we'd like to hear them equally. I'd like to hear if anybody's got any views on the, um, the, the position of the EU as it is as a whole. Having said that, there's any, uh, Philippe, do you want to come back on the... I rather walked you into a, um, an issue because you mentioned reform is important. So do you go along that these are the reforms that are necessary? Well, I'm, I'm just saying that 
when you get to a chance to vote in 2016 or 2017, you're not going to be voting on um, whatever uh, you hope the, might, the EU might be versus whatever you hope the UK might be outside. You're going to be voting on um, what is the EU like now and what is it likely to be outside. And, you know, it's very easy to project onto a world outside the EU whatever your fantasy or utopia of what your ideal society um, uh, would be. And the reality is that's most likely not going to come to pass. So, you know, look, looking at the EU warts and all, you're going to find lots of warts. They're going to have lots of things you dislike about Britain. You're going to have lots of things you dislike about the EU. And you say, wouldn't it be better if it was different? Yes, I would agree with lots of things. It would be nice to have for them to be different, both about Britain and about the EU. But the realistic question you need to ask is, is leaving the EU really going to achieve the desirable changes that you want to see? And I think in almost every case, the answer will be no. Have you got any particular reforms in mind that you'd link are good? I accept your warts point. What reforms would you like to see happen? In terms of the EU? Yes. I'd like to have uh, a genuine single market in services. Uh, I'd like to open up the EU would welcome uh, more countries um, to the east uh, and uh, eventually to uh, the south. I think we need to make uh, the EU um, uh, more democratic. Make the uh, by reinforcing the making the uh, parliament a proper parliament, making sure the council takes decisions um, uh, openly rather than secret, uh, those kinds of things. I, a whole host of different things. I hope they're on the agenda of the discussions. No, they're not. They're not um, on the agenda. Uh, uh, assures uh, us they're are, not. She's probably going to know. They're, they're not enlargement. Further enlargement is not only not on the UK agenda. It is not on the rest of the EU's agenda. The last thing the EU needs now is more enlargement. But I think the single most There's important... There's one coming, though, isn't there? Uh, the, the single... Croatia. Tiny, Croatia. The, the single Croatia. most important... Oh, sorry, uh, Serbia. Uh, the, single most, the single most important reform point, I think... Uh, I, I accept that the public is more concerned about welfare and benefit tourism, as it's called, restricting access of people who arrive here... Uh, to benefits until they've contributed to the system, and I completely agree with that. I think that's fair. But I think the single most important one that the Prime Minister is on pretty tricky, tricky ground about is that profound question, other speakers have touched on it, of what happens as the, se as the Eurozone moves forward to further political, fiscal, economic integration, and what happens to the outs. At the moment, there are only two outs, well, Sweden now is well, three outs, that, are, that have declared that they, Denmark and the UK have got opt-outs, but Sweden also has voted not to go in. But the others are on a track to go in. And I think a great success would be if the Prime Minister could get some very clear legislative boundaries for the Eurozone not caucusing against the interests of, for example, the United Kingdom, where 41% of our financial services sector, 41% um, of our trade with the EU in services is represented by the UK's financial services sector. We are sitting here in the city of London. This is the, the, your, the EU's biggest financial services sector, as well as other services that hang on the back of financial services, law, other corporate services. Um, if the, e if the Eurozone starts caucusing against the interests of the city, or if the Eurozone starts bringing in, using qualified majority voting as they did on, on European 
stability fund, it's getting a bit technical, to do a bailout for Greece, which they shouldn't have done, and we've now got a guarantee that they won't do it again. Those are the things that are really difficult. And if we can succeed on that, then I would applaud the renegotiation. Thank you very much. Yeah, they, they certainly can... Uh, they can wants caucus. To come yes, yes, Phil. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Um, on, can I, I want to come in on the sovereignty issue because I think sovereignty's uh, been mystified or rather uh, uh, confused as to what sovereignty is. Sovereignty means being able to make your own decisions as a political uh, uh, unit. We happen to be. There are lots of problems with national democracy. I'm, I've got a lot of criticisms of national democracy. I've got a lot of criticism with even the form of referendum. But the reality at the moment is that the nation state is the best form of democracy which exists at the moment. We've got to make, make it work better than it is at the moment. Sovereignty is not about entering into trade agreements. It's not about entering into treaties, right? Because, as Matthew was saying, sovereignty is about being able to control your destiny. Now, you can enter into trade agreement and then you can decide to leave that trade agreement. You can enter into the EU, and as may happen in this case, after the referendum, it may leave the EU. That is, not, that is itself is not about the abrogation of sovereignty, because the abrogation of sovereignty is when you're not able to make decisions about your policies yourself. That's the problem with being within the EU. Sovereignty is about control. Tony Benn had that, you know, the late Tony Benn, made that, you know, I think, quite uh, uh, succinct point about um, uh, when you meet a powerful person, ask them a couple of questions. One, who are you accountable to? And secondly, how can I get rid of you? <laughs> and if you can't get rid of the people and you can't get rid of the judges, there is a, a mechanism through Parliament. There is a mechanism through Parliament to get rid of, uh, 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 of the commissioners. Um, well, judges which are playing a political role at the moment and actually making the law is not the sort of judge that I want to see. That at the moment, we have a situation that East, European Court of Justice judges are actually not just uh, assessing what the law is if people are breaking the law, they are making up the law and developing the law at the moment. And that's... And that, and that, that, we'll if, I, if, I, if I may continue. Sovereignty is also not about closing yourself off from the world, right? Sovereignty is about making decisions about what your relationship to the rest of the world is. Sovereignty is not inconsistent with free uh, borders for migrants or free borders for trade. I'm in favour of both. I'm in favour of both... Uh, winning back, securing back sovereignty for people in this uh, nation and in other nations to be able to make decisions themselves. I would, will argue that those decisions should be about opening the borders, that those decisions should be about arguing for free trade and all sorts of other things. But sovereignty then is, is what, to me, is the issue of not being able to get rid of people and not being able to get rid of the people who are making decisions about, about our life. From that, I, I, I'm grateful for Philippe for raising the point that he thinks I'm arguing a red, a red herring. Of course I'm not arguing that simply a no vote in the referendum is going to resolve all the problems of the lack of democratic accountability in Britain. Of course not. What I'm saying, and what I think in your uh, uh, good intentions to reform the EU in a democratic direction, I think what you underestimate is the extent to which the EU exemplifies, entrenches the anti-democratic trend. It's not something which is moving in the right direction. Right? Every opportunity the EU elite expresses their contempt for people. Look at the parliamentary elections last year. When the parliamentary elections last year took place, the discussion from the uh, Euro elite was about why did so many stupid people vote for uh, the, the, the National Front, France National, or so many stupid people vote for, for UKIP and so on. Hmm? 
so the, the, so the, the, the point about the uh, uh, sorry the point about the uh, 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 direction of change. I respect that you want to see uh, a reform, but the institutionalization of, of uh, uh, anti-democracy in the EU is what makes it a suitable focus for fighting to restore democracy through arguing against this institution. And that's a way of actually making the case and, uh, and developing the case to be able to create democracy, not just in Britain, but across, uh, across Europe. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, we'll come back to the other members of the panel, but first I want to go out and see if there are any other questions or comments that um, have, come, have come up as a result of this discussion. So are there? One over here. I think any kind of meaningful reform of the EU would mean no EU, because those are the kind of things I object to that has been said. Uh, I just don't see the European Parliament as even being like a pretend democratic institution. It's not even a beard or a merkin, you know. It's not covering or doing anything. Nobody votes for it and nobody likes it. All the decisions that are made in Europe are not really made by the European Parliament. They just rubber stamp them. So if you have basically some unelected officials, elites from all of the different countries with a basically different view of how Europe should go to what people in England and Scotland, Ireland, Wales have, then I do not see why, we, why should we want to be part of that particular project. I think it would be lovely to have a, a completely open Europe where we're all together. Absolutely lovely. But I see the European Union as one of the biggest barriers towards that. It's the thing that... It, Europe at the moment to most British people is not a, something that they're part of. I know that younger people feel very, very much different to all the older people. But nobody just really wants to get involved at all in the monetary or political union that is going to come as a result of the monetary union that they've got. You can see the problems that they have when they don't unify and do all things all together. They can't agree with each other. I am a, a very left-wing kind of English person who just does not want to be involved with any of that. Perhaps okay. it's a generational thing, but the, the youngsters all seem to believe that by somehow being in a really undemocratic European Union, we are marching towards something progressive, that it will somehow reform itself. It's absolutely not going to. Look how much more powerful it gets every time something goes wrong. If this was a, any kind of democratic or any kind of uh, organisation that took any notice of what anyone else says at all, something that went that wrong that much, everyone would have been fired. Instead, they just get only more powerful. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Lady in the front there. I would like to make a very quick point. When we are talking about free, free movement, we are talking about tourism and about uh, people that are paying taxes in the UK, but we are forgetting about all the sharing knowledge we will lose and all the talent we were left behind. Last, like in my case, uh, I'm part of a master program uh, sponsored by the European Union. Uh, we are 75 people that uh, came from all over the world and we studied one year in Denmark and one year in the UK. And guess what? The people from the UA pay half of the fees. We pay 400 euros for studying in the best university in UK. Uh, we also have several benefits. We have a grant and we don't have to deal with visa problems. And unfortunately, some people from my program, from China, Morocco, Russia, they couldn't make it this year because they have some barriers because of the visa. So imagine, now, now it's hard. Imagine if you are out of the European Union, all the talent you were left behind. Thank you. Okay. That's, uh... Gentlemen at the back, the, over there, yeah, thank you very much.
Thanks. Uh, I am of Sean's generation. Um, for the last 70 years, uh, there hasn't been a major land war in Europe. Um, that is the longest consecutive period of time in the whole of history, and you can go back 5,000 years, uh, 70 years, the longest period of time without a major land war in Europe. And for the vast majority of that time, the European project has been in existence in some form or other. Um, and there is a strong reason to suggest that you know, those two facts are connected. And the point I want to make is, uh, in a sense, a slight reversal. It is not, would Britain be better off after Brexit, but would Europe be better off after Brexit? Uh, and what would the impact be on the European situation as a whole? Because whatever we think about the British situation... I think it is in our interests that Europe is a strong place. Uh, and I think part of our thinking about a referendum in, in Britain should be not only its impact on Britain, but its impact on Europe. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to come back to the panel now. And, and please, if you've got any closing remarks that you wanted to make that, from any of it, then please do. Um, but I think that's a very good point. I think it, I'm not saying that's going to be a major issue in the Brexit uh, discussion nearer the time, but it is worth thinking about what the impact on the EU would be of um, Brexit, and arguably the very fact that there's a sort of uh, debate like this and a referendum coming could have an impact on the way the EU might want to treat us in future, uh, which, as someone was pointing out, I think, uh, Matthew, that it's all about relationships. Uh, they may not be quite so good after that if you have these sort of rows, should we say. So I'm going to come back to the panel, but we might get one ch a chance to ask some questions. Um, some other, for some other questions. So, Matthew, do you want to pick up anything that's gone on um, recently? Um, thank you. Uh, three very quick points. First of all, the, the interesting question we were asked a, a while ago about um, immigration and low wages, uh, which I think is a, is a really uh, interesting and very difficult topic to, uh, to get to the bottom of. I think there are many things that put pressure on wages. Uh, competition within an economy does. Um, immigrants who have lower expectations of wages can do too. Um, so does globalization, and so does the ability to move where work is done around the world uh, and to move some aspects of work to lower-wage economies. To me, the right answer to this, which I, I think is one that every European country could do an awful lot better, um, is not so much to try to um, reduce the, the pressure on wages, but to try to raise the level of skills, the higher skills you have, uh, the higher wages you can command. And there is no doubt that the sort of work that higher skilled labour does is also safer, uh, cleaner, uh, and, and so forth. So you, you move your economy uh, into, a, into a higher plane. I wanted also to touch very quickly on two other things. One, Peter, was your comment um, about the decline in relative strength of the EU economy. Uh, this has been very largely brought out by hundreds of millions of people in China and India being brought out of absolute exactly. poverty, which I would say is a very good thing indeed uh, for them, for the world, and, and for Europe, because it expands uh, the markets that we can address. Um, so I'm all in favour of people in the rest of the world getting richer, even if that means that Europe relatively is poorer. Um, and finally, Phil's points on sovereignty. My point about sovereignty was a very simple one, that every time you enter into a treaty, you constrain your sovereignty in some way. That's what treaties do. Uh, and the treaties in the European Union are no different to any other treaties. In 1389, 
we entered a treaty with Portugal, which is still in force, which constrains some of the things that we can do in our relationship with Portugal, including invading it. Um, now, you might argue that's a very good thing. Uh, I would say it is, and that's probably why the treaty is still in force. But every, every treaty, including now the European Union Treaty, was rather rare uh, in not having exit provisions, but it does now have exit provisions. So every treaty has the ability for you to take back your sovereignty. Um, the, 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 so there isn't something unique about the European Union in removing sovereignty. That was my point. Every treaty does. If you look at the way that the NATO treaty constrains our sovereignty and constrains us to take uh, some of the most difficult decisions that you can take, decisions to send soldiers to fight and die, um, uh, in Article 5 of the NATO treaty, if you look at uh, Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter um, and the way in which that constrains the international behavior of states, um, these, are, these can be very profound things. They're entered into ratified by parliaments, um, and in most cases you can withdraw from them. The question uh, is what are the implications of withdrawing from it. Your sovereignty is always retrievable, um, but a voluntary constraining of sovereignty is a necessary part of international relations. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, very last comments now we're into. Thomas, do you want anything to round up? Yeah, yeah. this uh, issue about what has kept the peace of Europe... I totally agree with this um, gentleman's argument, except to say it's only half the story. The other half is NATO. The, the, the reason why we've kept the peace in Europe and been able to deter the old Soviet Union, our Russia, has been because America was present on our soils and guaranteed the atomic sort of coverage uh, through it. Europeans would have been daft to, after two world wars to think of ever being at each other's throats again. Um, now that we have recovered our strengths, we might think there might be new conflicts. But the basic lack of a conflict or absence of a conflict has been due to the fact that, uh, as Lord Ismay once famously said in 1949, the reason for NATO was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Now, that has not quite worked out <laughs> to our benefit and everyone else's, uh, but uh, NATO is an essential part. And, and, but the peace argument has, I think, somewhat run its course because we are engaged in peaceful activity, but that doesn't solve our issue. We need to feel we have enough flexibility to look after our own good, and, and that's the point that I'm trying to make and that I haven't been quite convinced by the in-argument that... Um, that the, it will safeguard the flexibility, more flexibility than Britain needs. She, she, can, be, uh, she can do her own. I don't believe also that the, uh, all the companies and international companies will relocate once Britain leaves the EU. There's been no argument to, to be made for that. And I'm, I'm thinking that the, uh, unlike what you said quite convincingly and eloquently about the relationship with the central European Euro member states, I do believe that migration is an essential aspect, and I think a lot of it rides on how you solve this and how Cameron gets away from the negotiating table okay. in re receiving enough uh, individual flexibility for Thank, thank you very much. Um, Philippe, we'll come back on. Anything? Yeah, first on democracy. I mean, I think both Britain and the EU need to be more democratic. But there is a model of a country within the EU which is much more democratic, which shows that it's not the EU that's the constraint, and that's Sweden. You see that Swedish ministers are much more account open and accountable for the decisions they take uh, in Brussels. You see that the Europe Committee in the Swedish Parliament 
uh, holds to account what they do much more effectively uh, than, than our own parliament does. You see that the democratic system uh, in Sweden in general uh, operates in a much more open and transparent and accountable way uh, than our, our own does, which tells you that the real flaws that you identify, Phil, lie in Britain, uh, not primarily uh, in Europe. Secondly, the gentleman over there who talked about barriers um, to openness. I mean, again, I agree that you could be um, uh, much more open. Um, but the, far from being a barrier to open, uh, it is spread openness. Thanks to, you know, it's thanks to the EU that we had the deregulation of air travel, which gave us you know, EasyJet and Ryanair, which means that suddenly going abroad has been democratised. It's thanks to the EU that we have freedom of movement uh, from uh, Lithuania uh, to Liverpool and from uh, London uh, to Lisbon. And what a fantastic that thing, it, thing that is. It's thanks to the EU that we have the Erasmus programme uh, so that uh, British students and foreign students can go uh, study abroad, so British people can go work abroad, so British pensioners can go retire in Spain and benefit uh, from free healthcare um, uh, when they're there. I think a bit uh, about what the potential consequences of leaving might be. There will be a second referendum in Scotland, and it's quite probable uh, that Scotland would vote to leave. There would certainly be an external EU border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which many people in Ireland find uh, profoundly uh, worrying. Uh, and if there is a vote to leave, it will not be uh, a vote in favour of people like Phil. It will be a vote in favour primarily of people like Nigel Farage, which means actually it will be a vote primarily for pulling up the drawbridge, for closing the borders, uh, for saying stop the world, I want to get off. And that's something that I want no part of. So thank you very much, um, Philip. Um, we've got two, one minute, one minute each. Phil, do you want to go with your one minute? Okay. I agree with Philippe. The problems are mainly, the, the anti-democratic trends that we're seeing are mainly national. Um, uh, 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 and, of course, there are different ways in which countries can, can negotiate those democratic uh, deficiencies. My argument is that the EU institutionalizes that. My argument is that the EU is the main form in which the anti-democratic uh, 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 tendencies are, uh, uh, are expressed. And it's not the case, to reiterate, that leaving the EU will solve everything, will solve democratic accountability, will create you know, the, the world that me and Philippe both want to see of open borders. Um, but it will be a sign um, that we are taking matters into our own hands. It would be a sign by voting no that we are beginning to fight to change the world for a better place. It will be a sign of saying that we're not prepared to lose control or accept the abrogation of control to others, but be prepared to do something which is not just in the interest of British people, because to end on the question about what would it mean for Europe, whatever figures are, two-thirds, 70% of, of European people feel estranged from the European institutions, feel that you, EU has got nothing to say to them. Europeans as well, across the whole, or Europeans within EU, um, could take that lead as well from a decision by the British people to vote to, to vote to leave. A vote to leave, then, would be a sign of people standing up and beginning to fight again for democracy, not just in Britain, but across, across Europe, and that would okay. be a pro pro progressive thing for Europe Thank as you. well. And um, you've got the last word, um, Kishma, just for um, a minute, though. Um, I think the whole discussion today has highlighted how... Um, divided we are as a country about things that we haven't really thought through in the longer term. And I thought the most interesting question, although it's not what we can answer now, was about what Europe will look like and we will look like once we vote to leave, if we so do. And there's a simple point about treaties here. 
a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today, immigration, guess what? Those European countries that are taking in migrants in large numbers are doing so under a treaty, Article 51 of the Asylum Convention, um, refugee conventions. So this idea that we, by, by using Article 50 and walking out, as Phil says, we suddenly become sovereign individuals, autonomous and able to do what we want, wake up. This is the globalized 21st century. Everything we do is integrated with other things that happen to us, as well as things that we affect in other places. So I ask you to leave on this note. When you're sitting in an Italian restaurant, or when you're planning your next holiday, or when you're flying on Ryanair, or when you're looking at a drug that's manufactured beyond the UK's shores, think about this. Do we have more in common with each other, or do we have more in common with looking just at the UN Security Council, because a lot of it has been about the exercise of power, do we have more in common with Russia or China? I know which one matters to me more by a long margin. Thank you. Okay, that gives us something to think about. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. Can you thank the panel, please? <laughs> Thank you.